Listen to The Astonishing Junk Drawer exclusively at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. Times and dates are Scott's kryptonite. He was really fascinated with how sideways that got. By the way, I'm going to publicly shame you. Scores of persons in the streets dropped unconscious and several of them died. The Wait. Bet Sphere. Oh, The Bet Sphere, yes, of course. Do you need to change your perspective? I don't think you're supposed to remember past lives. Also, mm. check for notes or an autograph. Sometimes there's one and they do. Oh, yeah. And when her grandmother died, she and her sister fought viciously over this ring. And nobody other than you folks will ever see it again. They're cosmic jokers after me. Astonishing Legends would like to thank Roman, Mint Mobile, StoryWorth, Wondrium, Squarespace, Simply Safe, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. In part one of our series on the massacre at Duffy's Cut, we talked about the horrible fate that befell the 57 Irish immigrants who died there in 1832. Doctors Bill and Frank Watts have joined us to share what they've learned as co-founders of the Duffy's Cut Project after years of research and archaeological recovery work at the site in the heart of eastern Pennsylvania. Tonight, they join us again. This story might have been forgotten to time if it weren't for the ghosts of these men and at least one woman who died there. Spectres who began appearing almost as soon as they were killed worked desperately to attract the attention of passers-by for nearly 200 years. Thanks to the Watsons and the other dedicated academics, professionals, and volunteers on their team, those spirits may finally be at peace. But the story is not over yet. There are still remains to be recovered and trails to follow, even to additional sites of similar crimes. This astonishing legend began with a ghost story and has now developed into something much bigger than anyone looking into it could have imagined. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Dr. Frank Watson. John Burns had lost his son. Catherine Burns had lost her husband. And the two of them came to America for a better life, and they both died. They disappear at Duffy's Cut. Join us tonight for part two of our series on the 190-year-old cover-up of murder at Duffy's Cut. back. That we are, folks. Thanks for joining us tonight. The holiday season is so, so close. I'd like to start out by thanking strangefellows.us for the box of plushy cryptids they sent us. They are absolutely yeah. amazing. So if you're looking for something else fun to get for that special someone this holiday season, get over there and check out the cryptids they have. We got a Mothman, Bigfoot, the Flatwoods Monster, uh, the Wendigo, and more. <laughs> and they come with these killer trading cards, too. I'm like this yeah. thick card stocks. Very cool. Yeah. Check them out at underscore strange fellows on instagram meaning you know like a single character underline and then mm -hmm. the word strange fellows or visit them at strangefellows.us also we would like to thank our friend rachel langan who sent me a great little knitted ghost in a jar yeah. complete with a flickering light it's the coolest thing ever we've, <laughs> we've got a video cool. of it on the official astonishing legends instagram page if you want to get one yourself visit her etsy at Rancho Works. That's spelled like ranch, R-A-N-C-H, and then A-E-L Works, W-O-R-K-S on Etsy. She has them up there. 
All righty. Just one other quick note. The annual Astonishing Legends All-Star Holiday Special number three is upon us. And for the first time, we'll be live streamed on YouTube this Monday, December 12th, starting at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific, and 11 p.m. in the UK, or 2300 hours, Greenwich Mean Time. This year, Scott and Tess and I are welcoming back Micah Hanks, Jim Harold, Richard Haddam, and new to the guest list, a paranormal podcaster from across the pond, our good friend Paul Gledhill of the Anomaly Podcast out of the UK. We will also have joining us for the first time the founder of American Ghost Walks and creator of the Paranormal Women YouTube channel, Allison Jornlin. We'll be talking about some of the strangest things we encountered this year and just generally shooting the paranormal breeze. Don't miss it. Last note for tonight, folks. Frank Watson was kind enough to send us a recording of the bagpipe song he wrote called Lament for the 57, and he has given us permission to share that with you. Tonight, if you stay tuned after the closing credits, you will hear it. Special thanks to Frank for sending that over and uh, letting us share it. Yes, please stick around and take a listen to that. It's really lovely and evokes such emotion. Well, we're excited about this show on the rest of Duffy's Cut, so let's dive in. Right. So in part one, we left off with our guests, Drs. Bill and Frank Watson, having essentially confirmed that the 57 Irish immigrants at Duffy's Cut were in fact buried on mile 59, where they'd been working. And on top of that, it looked like while cholera may have been a factor, appearances suggested that there could have been a cover-up of a, a mass murder, really. Yeah. Well, it seemed that some of the remains that the Duffy's Cut project recovered had been violently assaulted and with no defensive wounds. So why was that? Well, like everything else forensic, that's debated. But tonight, we're back with them to get further info into what may have happened, who may have perpetrated the violence, and yes, more paranormal parts of the puzzle. All right, Sarah, let's roll into this next chunk of our discussion with Bill and Frank. So, Bill, didn't you guys mention that there was some article or news story that seems to have disappeared from all the archives about the deaths at Duffy's Cut? It was a Philadelphia Inquirer article, and it also appeared in the Daily Local newspaper that we, where the uh, supposed correction uh, to an earlier story appears. There was only seven, eight, or nine guys who died there. And um, that's a story that has disappeared. The original story uh, was October 8th, 1832, from every archive in North America. That's the only issue that doesn't exist in the run. It's pulled at the time. The only agency that could have done that would have been members of the East Whiteland Horse Company who lived local to that. But this other story is around the same time as that correction appeared in November that another group of immigrants during the cholera epidemic were murdered and um, the man who harbored them trying to protect them from the locals was was murdered and that the house that he lived in and all their bodies was burned. And I think that's in our first book. Yes, it is. I, I read that in there. We know that there was violence um, in these work camps. We knew that there was violence in Chester County. Uh, the, the, the man who, who really um, was kind of at the heart of that later massacre was German. He was a German immigrant, but he was suspected of having cholera. And all of those who harbored him were murdered and their bodies were left to rot. It was a horrible story. Yeah, these other stories of violence, you know, I was just going to say that in 2014, there was a man who contacted us in, in the office out of Immaculata who claimed to be a descendant of someone in the East Whiteland Horse Company from 1832, who said that he knew his ancestors had done something wrong and he wanted to do something right and open up records that were still extant for that organization, which was the law under local judge Cromwell Pierce. 
And those records included an incident report, he said, of murders at Duffy's Cut, uh, something that we had evidence for in the physical anthropology end, which we speculated on you know, prior to that time, but which he had concrete evidence of, he says, in an incident report. And he wanted to open those records to us as, as well as um, lists of, of, of members of the organization, which they kept. And that stuff was... Uh, not available to us eventually because they were afraid of a lawsuit from collateral descendants of the Irishman. Can you explain a little bit what the East, because we haven't introduced them yet, the East Whiteland Horse Company was and, and the bigger model of that. And I, there's something I wanted to tell you guys about because you obviously don't have any history with our own archives of our show. We actually did a series a couple of years ago on a sheriff in Montana named Henry Plummer. And it was one of the first, uh, you know, documented instances of vigilantism out West. And so when you started to explain in your book about the horse company, I, I got it immediately, thanks to the Henry Plummer series, which Forrest was in the driver's seat on. It was a really amazing story about vigilantism, which is what it sounds like these horse companies are, which you said in your book were all over the country at the time. In Pennsylvania, they chartered uh, various horse companies um, to bring horse thieves and other breakers of the law to justice. And so we know that uh, the East Whiteland Horse Company was chartered um, to basically keep the law in an area where there was no law and they could do anything. And so at Chester County had just the sheriff and then the horse company and that's it. Yeah, well, there was a judge who lived close to the site named Cromwell Pierce. Yes. And after we found the first set of remains of John Ruddy in uh, 2009, about a month later, I did a talk at uh, St. David's Episcopal Church in Wayne. That's where Matt Anthony Wayne is buried. And um, anyway, in the audience was the great-great-granddaughter of Cromwell Pierce. Who, you know, I had brought up you know, our, our, our what-if scenario that perhaps uh, the horse company got its permission to kill these guys from the judge. And uh, she said, well, she knew that her ancestor, her great-great-grandfather, depended on the horse company to get elected and that they depended on him for some sort of scope of, of legality for whatever it was that they wanted to do. Man, it is utterly amazing to me that all of these descendants, of, of the survivors anyway, are, are still in the area. And you get this thing yeah. where some of them want to tell the truth, but even now, all these years later, it's like they can't. They're not allowed. Well, there's a lot of family pride and family history, and there's a lot to this history that is, well, criminal, and you don't want that attached to your good family name. So I understand that part, and there's a lot of people who carry that feeling and tradition from generation to generation, but there are some, I'm sure, the younger generations who are like, it's time for the truth to come out, wherever that yeah. leads. Yeah. Well, leading into this next section, we're a, a little bit more about why everything was so contentious amongst all these men and factions and, and a lot more about Philip Duffy, the contractor who supervised these jobs and went to the ports and wrangled his unsuspecting countrymen into working on them. Now, a little side note for me is until I talked to the, the brothers Watson, I didn't know what to think about Duffy. I mean, he sounded like he, he drove a hard bargain, certainly and got these men work, but what was he like as a person? So until we got this interview, I think that more cemented in my mind what was really going on here, as you'll see. Also remember that the John Stamp is the ship that 39 of these folks came over from Ireland to the U.S. on, and there were already 18 workers here on the previous mile, right? Making the total 57. That's right. Yeah. I can't remember if it was the adjacent mile. I think it might've been. And then they, ju they just moved up to join this and then Duffy needed more people. Yeah. This was a really tough mile. 
One of the biggest questions I had, and this is not going to surprise you, but like when we were going through the book, there's a lot of yeah. details in there. And one of the things that was hardest for me to wrap my head around was understanding the possible motivations for aggression yeah. between all these different groups, between the East Whiteland Horse Company, the Protestants, and the Catholics, because all of the folks on the John Stamp had come from Ulster, where the Catholics were the dominant portion of society, right, if I read it correctly, yeah. the majority, but they were subjugated. And so they're fleeing the potato famines happening and, and they're getting over here to the U.S. Yeah. But there's a bad feeling towards Irish immigrants in general. But then additionally, there are Irish immigrants that are already in the U.S. Right. That are having aggression towards other incoming Irish. Is that is that I can't keep it all straight. Is that correct? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a continuation of what was going on in, in Ulster over here. Right. Okay. Uh, which the year before Duffy's Cut, the incident happened at Duffy's Cut, there was a riot in Philly between Catholic and Protestant sections. It's very much like the July 12th parades today in Belfast and and in Derry. The idea that they, that they brought this stuff over with them, and it was present in Chester County. Now, you got to keep in mind, in 1832, in East Whiteland Township, where Duffy's Cut is located, there were only 910 people. Okay, almost none of those were were native-born Catholics. I'm pretty sure none of those, you know, other than uh, renters like people like Philip Duffy, uh, were Irish-born. And there was no one to advocate for these guys out there. And there were already instances of what we can only call nativism before the 1840s. Groups uh, that that would later coalesce into groups like the uh, the Know Nothings, you know, who are very anti-Irish and anti-immigrant. So that that was present in the 1830s. There is no doubt about it, and it was out there in Chester County. Philip Duffy, you know, sided with the bosses. You know, he was a man on the on the rise. He was a man of influence um, who gained a great deal of influence before he died. Philip Duffy um, ends up becoming the um, Democratic um, elector for the county of Philadelphia to elect a uh, canal commissioner within 15 years of Duffy's cut. He's a man of political influence and clout. And um, he does this on the back of his fellow Irishmen. He does it on the back of his laborers. Um, And because the story of Duffy's cut was not spoken about until after he died, we know that he was the one who was largely responsible for the fact that there was no memorial, there was no public telling of the tale of what happened there. Two of Duffy's children, his younger sons, he had two sets of twins, by the way, and and it's ironic that my brother and I are twins and Philip Duffy had two sets of twins, but the younger twins, the two youngest twins, they were called the Battling Duffy Twins. They were amateur boxers. They had made a name for themselves in the city of Philadelphia as boxers. They were rough and tumble, and they had a slew of different occupations for their jobs over the years. But basically, they lived with their father. So Duffy is a tough guy. And he has two twin boys who live with him who are rough and tumble boxers, and they made sure that nobody told the story until after he died. Of course, we subsequently found out, you know, his family didn't want to give him a, a, a stone, which they thought would be desecrated. But my AOH, Ancient Order of Hibernian Brethren here in Delaware County, where I live, which is the most Irish county in the state, one of the most Irish counties in the country, uh, said that we should not get involved in an effort that was underway, oh, about the time that our book came out, to put a stone finally at the grave of Philip Duffy at St. Anne's Catholic Church in Memphis and Lehigh in Port Richmond. And our 
decision to back that was to put that neighborhood and its Irish immigrant population in the bigger picture here of what was going on all along the line where Duffy had six contracts with the Philadelphia and Columbia Railroad and a number of contracts with the Reading Railroad and with the Westchester Railroad to link these areas up in a bigger narrative. And so we helped support and we helped get that stone. As I said earlier, and I say often in class, that history is always the good, the bad, and the ugly. You got to tell it like it is. I'm Ray from the YouTube short film Paranormal League, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. We found him in the 1870 census, right? And that really got us going. We went down to the city archives and we said, he's an old man at this time. He's like 87 years old or whatever. How much longer could he live? And so we looked in the death records. We started 10 years you know, could he have lived into his 90s? And we started working our way back and we found his death record um, from April 22nd of 1871. And we found in the city record where he was buried. That is St. Anne's Catholic Church in the Port Richmond section of the city. Where it happens, he lived. You know, Duffy lived there actually for most of his life. Duffy lived in that area from the 1840s until he died. And, and it was an amazing thing. We went down and we found that there was a fire that had destroyed part of the cemetery record. So I'm an ecclesiastical archivist, right? So I know the value of parish registers, you know, deaths, baptisms, confirmation, burials, all this stuff. So I said, do you have a parish register from 1871? Ah, yes, we do, the secretary said. And out she brings this huge mammoth volume. And we turn to that date in April of 1871, and lo and behold, there was his burial record. And it lists one of his sons is buried there. There were four spots. We know for a fact that his wife was buried there. Um, they had an infant daughter who died, and the infant daughter was buried there, plus uh, one of the twin sons. And we think that both of the twin sons end up being buried there. It was a burial that went deep in the ground, not wide apart. And so we went out to the cemetery. We couldn't find it. There was no marker and we were just dumbfounded. You know, why wouldn't this powerful man, this powerful figure in Pennsylvania uh, not have a headstone? And it turned out later on that the family never put a headstone up because they were afraid that people would desecrate his grave. And that's because he, he treated his fellow countrymen pretty horribly. The family knew the truth of the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The family knew the truth. But we got that stone with the uh, St. Anne's Historical Commission. And a couple of other groups interested as well. But we, we we helped fund it. And the guy from West Laurel Hill who built the coffins for the burials there and also for John Ruddy when we took him over to Donegal in 2013, Bill Doran, who was an Irish immigrant himself, made the headstone that we, we put on uh, Duffy's grave. So there, it's important, again, to commemorate the good, the bad, and the ugly. You got to tell it like it is. And Duffy was a purveyor of his countrymen, I think a very bad man, you know, I think someone who, uh, uh, if there is a hell, he's probably there. And, and a lot of the people in the ancient of Hibernians uh, would agree with that. But we got him a stone in that parish in a struggling area now of Northeast Philadelphia is now linked up with a story in affluent Chester County where Irishmen were exploited. If you look at the photo in the, in the first book where we show St. Anne's Cemetery, 
he's actually buried on the right-hand side of that photograph. His burial spot is actually in that photograph. We didn't know it, but there was a crazy, scary dog that chased us through the cemetery. Yeah, and, and I thought, Scott, that's what you were going to say, what you were asking us, because I don't know if that's in, yeah. that may be in our book about this this hideous, uh, drooling, growling dog. It was like the Hound of the Baskervilles. Yeah. I don't remember that. Maybe that's in there. I don't remember maybe that. Maybe not to put it in there, but it's an odd thing. Again, uh, maybe a guardian, you know, I don't know. Where, oh, yeah, maybe it was in there, but I don't think I understood the significance of it. Explain that again. What what happened with the dog? So this dog was, uh, when we went to the cemetery, I mean, I've I've played a lot of, uh, of bagpipe gigs up there. I, I was in, originally in the AOH, HNRFI Barnians up there in, in Northeast Philly, and um, I played a lot of jobs. And I said, you guys, I think this church might be it, but we had no way of proving it. And when we went down to the city archives and found the record that he was buried there, it's like, man, you know, you got to go on intuition sometimes. But when we got to the church, this Hound of the Baskervilles kind of dog didn't want us going in that section. I mean, very specifically, it looked like it was guarding its owner's grave, you know, and so we were all kind of freaked out by it. But yeah, it disappeared. Wait, the dog disappeared? The dog disappeared. The dog disappeared. Yeah. We don't know where it ran off to, but it, one minute it was chased us. It was it was chasing us like it wanted to eat us for for an early supper, and then then the dog was gone. It's like okay. Um, yeah, it, it's very territorial, and it disappeared. But there was, let me see, that year I think would have been in 2007? Yeah, probably 2007. So, and then you flash forward to 2018, 11 years later, we found out where, where in the cemetery yes. is buried. That's where he was buried. Wow. Well, you know, there's something to that classic encounter and entity, the large black hound. From the black shuck to the hound of the Baskervilles to the cemetery scene in The Omen, mm -hmm. where I think David Warner encounters one, it's always come up in history. Yeah, it's scary stuff. And it was fascinating to me that, the, you know, they both saw this thing, whatever it was. And that's one of those things where it's like, okay, maybe it was just someone's dog It'd that got dog. out or loose dog, but did, why did it disappear? Why was it growling? Because that's a little bit uncommon too, at least to me. It's like a dog that's growling, there's going to be a follow through on that encounter, probably one that you don't want. It's not just going to vanish. It's different from a stray that's got its tail tucked and is afraid of you and is is running around because it got out from somebody's yard. So <laughs> there, there are components of that story that it's like pretty freaky. It's like it was there and it was right where they were looking. Yeah. And it was right where they wound up finding out that the grave was and then it disappeared. But the other thing about it for us, like the, in that moment, they got a vibe from that. They got a feeling. Yeah. It was more than just this dog is here. Right. It's like this doesn't feel necessarily earthly. No, this whole experience over these years, the, the decades here, is filled with signs and wonders and synchronicities and coincidences. And uh, I'm going to go with vibe. <laughs> of course, yeah, it can be a junkyard dog or it could be the hellhound Cerberus or Ooh, you know, with nice. one head. Yeah. Yeah. But no, it's it, the classic hellhound guarding something or sure okay it got in through the fence it got out again it's just weird you know well yeah and think about this man when you talk about the forces of good and evil because there's a lot going on here you'll hear a little bit another story yeah. here in a minute you have to figure out what is it representing if if you believe any of this at all and you get past the whole the idea of all these different various encounters that are wrapped up in this story that these guys are having over and over and right. members of their team are having too when you think about the stage they were at when they were there they were trying to figure out where Duffy was buried, and their goal was actually to mark his grave, yeah. something that his own family was afraid to do because they thought it would be desecrated because he was not thought of kindly. Even if people weren't allowed to talk about it and it was pulled from the papers, 
they knew what he had done and they knew how he was right. a part of these deaths. So if this dog is an unearthly creature, what does it represent? Does it represent yeah. something defending the honor of the 57 being like, this man does not deserve a monument or oh. is it something representing the man saying, just <laughs> get away from me. I know yeah. we, you're trying to uncover my story. Just leave me alone. I don't need a headstone. Like you can't even tell there's so much going on. You can't even tell what team these things are on. There's a lot <laughs> right, of complicated right. politics, both spiritual and real in this. Well, yeah, that's what I was alluding to earlier in that you read the materials and after the first book, you don't really know what to think of Duffy as a person. Yeah, he didn't seem like a sweetheart, but was he guilty of anything criminal or really awful behavior or was it just a product of the times? And until we spoke to the brothers Watson, I wanted more character reference for this guy to put him in context and in history. And I think with the second book, that's when that comes out. But you're right. It's right. like there's so many different ideas. And uh, you just mentioned something that was pretty curious to me is that when you you see the black-dressed specter, uh, who is that? And are they trying to give you a, a decent message or a good message or connect with you to the present and their story to be told? Or is it get away? Because as they describe it, it wasn't a touchy-feely experience. It was yeah. something you wanted to avoid. Now, like I said, that's confusing to me. It's not like, oh, by the way, there are three books and you must open them and then there's a there's a secret in them. It's just like, uh, get out, get away. You're in danger right. if you stick around. Yeah. So yeah, it's a fascinating story, but who knows what's going on on the other side. What I know is that a dog like that gets your attention. Yeah, and I think it's also a testament to their character that they're wanting to cross the T's and dot the I's on this whole story. And right. they're going out of their way to put a gravestone where Duffy is buried. And yeah. to, they want you to be able to find every component of this, as they say, the good, the bad, and the ugly. All right, so let's roll into this next segment with the, uh, with the Brothers Watson, as you said, Forrest. Can you explain to our listeners a little bit more about the ancient order of Hibernians? Well, the ancient order of Hibernians was started in the first couple decades of the 19th century to protect um, the church. I mean, it was it has roots going back many centuries earlier than that, and other organizations in Ireland to protect priests at a time when Catholicism was outlawed in uh, what was then uh, British-controlled Ireland. You know, Catholicism at one time was illegal, and the only place uh, in the English-speaking world where there was a, a legal Catholic church in the early 18th century, it was in Philadelphia, Old St. Joseph's. And that is where some of the nuns uh, who would be called on to serve in uh, cholera hospitals came from. The Sisters of Charity were the only or entity, really, that came to the support of a struggling nursing profession at the time that the cholera epidemic hit Philadelphia in 1832. And uh, we know there were a dozen of them, both from St. Joseph's and from St. John's. And um, someone called for four of them to go all the way out to Chester County to help uh, try to save some of the lives of the Irish Catholics there. And they were conveyed by carriage to Duffy's Cut. But after their task was done, no one had the guts to take them back into Philly. And they had to walk the entire distance along Lancaster Avenue, which is a crazy story and unto itself. Mm -hmm. Such was the extent of the Catholic bigotry at the time and fear of the, of the disease. No one wanted to take them back into the city. 
And we know that the railroad supervisor at the site of Duffy's Cut was, his name was William Mitchell. The thing is, he was from Northern Ireland himself. He was a Protestant. And um, as a Protestant Christian, um, you know, was allowed to move into the, uh, you know, the upper echelons of the railroad. And he was a respected railroad engineer. He ended up uh, entering politics eventually. He left Pennsylvania and ended up out west uh, serving in politics. But William Mitchell supposedly, according to what we have in our evidence, that he was the one who um, established what was called a cholera hospital at Duffy's Cut. We don't believe a hospital as such existed there, but we think that what happened was that it was William Mitchell, the railroad uh, supervisor, who was able to get these nuns from Philadelphia, because uh, that was his stretch of the railroad. He supervised that whole area, and so the Eastern Division of the Railroad was his, his ball of wax. And um, he brought these nuns out there from Philly, but uh, of course, made no provision for their return to Philly after they did what what they did as as nurses. It's a sad testament to bigotry and to the um, the prejudices that existed at the time. Yeah, and and the this hospital, there was actually over a thousand dollars paid by the state for this supposed hospital. Uh, that money would have been pocketed probably by Duffy and by the blacksmith who was charged with burying the bodies there. So, and that would be Malachi Harris that you were talking yes, about. Yes, Malachi mm-hmm. Harris, the blacksmith. You think that he was helping them out. You don't have proof of that though, right? It's like speculative. We have speculative. evidence that the blacksmith tried, that's in the Duffy's Cut file, that the blacksmith tried to help them. Um, and when the nuns came out, um, he basically allowed them to do what they, they could do. And then uh, it was his charge to bury them. So okay. the blacksmith, Malachi Harris, ended up burying them. And likely they were the, the first ones that's referring to the first ones who we recovered um, at the site because they had individual coffins. We, we were shocked as anything. We were so shocked. The first body, we thought the wood that was underneath uh, John Ruddy was a sled because it talks about, the file talks about the bodies being taken to a, their burial spot on a sled. But it turns out that was a coffin. And each of the bodies that we uncovered along the railroad fill um, had coffins and they were oriented properly. I looked at these bodies as a clergyman. I said, I said, you know, the head is in the West and the feet are in the East. This is the proper mode of burial. So whoever put them in the ground had some care. But as Bill will tell you about the nails on the coffin, that tells a different story. And when you, when you start looking at the number of nails that were recovered from these uh graves. Each of those coffins had about 100 nails. It's, it's insane. The only reason why you would have needed that is to seal the thing shut so much that no one could possibly pry the lid open and see that they had not died of cholera. But as Janet Monge says, as Frank mentioned, they didn't die of cholera. They, and, and, and guys who had bullets in their heads weren't born with those bullets in their heads. So it was done to, to conceal the mess. That's where we come down to the real revelation is once you discovered these. To date, I mean, getting a little bit ahead here, but to date, you have uncovered, uh, this was the, re- the remains of seven people in coffins, right? Yeah, seven, seven, yeah, seven burials that we've re-uncovered. Okay. And it's your belief that if there is another mass grave, it is likely too dangerous to excavate from an engineering standpoint because of the active portion of the track. Yeah, because the, the anomaly that our geophysicist Tim Bechtel found is about 20 to 30 feet below the surface uh, underneath the stone wall. Um, and it and, and okay. it arcs out towards 
the modern tracks. It's shaped like a J, though, so that one of the prongs goes under the tracks. We can't get to them. Yeah, so even if we could get the, the large body of the remains underneath the stone wall, we can't get them all because they're under the modern tracks. Amtrak gave us permission because we, we actually had a, a um, an engineer survey and, and all sorts of ideas to do this, and they approved it. We went down to Amtrak. Bill and I went down to the uh, uh, 30th Street Station in Philadelphia, met with executives with our engineer for this, and they gave us permission. The bottom line is, Right now, we don't have any, we hope to recover what we can recover there, but not all of them will be recoverable. So you actually got permission from the railroad. Yeah, Amtrak completely changed his tune. And it was because uh, there's two factors in this. One, we met with the Friends of Ireland Committee on Capitol Hill. (laughs) And our uh, engineer, Frank, talked about was Joe DeVoy, uh, an Irish immigrant himself who had a lot of muscle and was a contractor and purveyor of... uh, of Irishmen and other more uh, peaceful pursuits than building railroads. He's got a place called Telus 360 in Lancaster, a concert venue. Anyway, he's got the resources to get this done. And um, we met with the Friends of Ireland Committee on Capitol Hill and then down on 30th Street with a very specific plan that was approved for an excavation. The problem was that there wasn't coordination as far as where the uh, core samples were taken later in 2015 when we came back after the second burial in Ireland. And... Um, they were in the wrong place. It's again, it's shaped kind of like a J. This anomaly. Tim found this for us in 2012, uh, before 2012, and it's uh, sort of shallow, close to the monument on the western side. Then it goes arcs around the monument, and it comes up like a J towards the tracks. And we won't get them all, but we, st- we still do entertain the hope that we're going to eventually go back there and finish. Right now, though, we're uh, preoccupied with another site, a spinoff site in Downingtown, where we've been for the past year, where it's mentioned in our uh, our 2006 book, The Ghost of Duffy's Cut, the one man ran west and infected another crew at Downingtown, mile 48 of that line. And so we're currently working there, and we want to return to the cut when we're done there. We think we're getting close, very close out of Downingtown. It's a potter's field and a contemporary cemetery uh, that uh, we have permission to excavate, and uh, they hope we can find the uh, mass grave out there without any of the issues like we had with Amtrak or homeowners, the cemetery is solidly behind it. Wow. Okay. So let's come back around to this recovery then, because I didn't hear this speculated on in, in your first book and can't, we can't wait to read your second one, but like with regard to these first uh, seven victims being in the coffins, okay, so there's a cover up, there's extra nails probably to hide the fact that they were murdered. Where have you gotten to with why they might be separate from the mass grave? and why they might have taken the trouble to bury just those seven in coffins while the other ones wound up in the mass grave. Do you have a sequence of events that you think might have happened? Yeah, we have from the railroad file, there were some that escaped and they went to the neighboring houses for assistance and they were denied help and basically forced back into the valley. So we know for a fact from the railroad file that um, there were a number of these folks who had knew that there was cholera in the camp and they escaped and they were basically forced back into the valley. So what we found with the archaeological and the anthropological study, the archaeological work and the anthropological work was is that they weren't just forced back into the valley, but they were carried back in coffins. They were brought back in sealed coffins. And we, we believe that the violence was done to them with no defensive wounds on any of those bodies, by the way. They were, they were murdered probably with hands tied behind their backs. 
and, and one of those guys is very tall. The average height being five six. One of those guys is over six feet tall, and he had an axe blow on the side of his head and a bullet fired directly over top. And the reason this happened probably is because they escaped the valley, killed off site, brought back into sealed coffins. So as not to infect the community, but also, you know, if you, you got to include in the possibility of ethnic or religious bigotry behind this, the place where they probably were killed was at the home of Cromwell Pierce. That house still stands. We just learned that the Duffy house got torn down, the house that Philip Duffy was renting at the time, but the Cromwell Pierce house still stands. The really nice stone house? Oh, no, his first house, his first house. Yeah, it was a wooden structure, yeah. Okay, so you think maybe that wherever they, maybe they were rounded up, they were brought there, maybe the horse company came and assassinated them at Cromwell's house. Because there were no defensive wounds. And Janet Monge uh, said that they were likely tied up before they were killed. Um, No defensive wounds on any of the bodies, which is horrific when you think about it. It's just horrific. Uh, These people were tied up and they were executed. Bill, what was it that you said that Cromwell's great-granddaughter Said. That he stayed in power by the support of the horse company and and they received the political support that they needed to operate by Cromwell Pierce. So it was a mutually beneficial relationship between the two, the horse company and the local magistrate. She didn't make any effort to necessarily cover up his participation in whatever might have happened. No. With the seven that are recovered... You've taken two of them back to Ireland, is that correct? Yes. Yeah, we we buried um, two in Ireland, one in Donegal, one in County Tyrone, in addition to the five buried at West Laurel Hill. So we have seven recovered and seven reburied. And West Laurel Hill is is uh, local? Ballakinwood, just Ballakinwood, outside of Philadelphia. Belmont Avenue uh, off of Route 1 in, in uh, a spot that's very close to uh, the western suburbs of Philly. And, uh, now very what's beautiful. ironic is that where these men are buried because the woman is buried. She's part of her is also in in Pennsylvania. But where these railroaders are buried is in a cemetery where many of the makers and the shakers of the early railroad are buried. So the power players in Philadelphia and the surrounding counties are a lot of them were buried there at the same cemetery. So you drive into the cemetery, the first thing you're going to see is the memorial cross made in Ireland for these men who were buried there. Paid for by Immaculata. The IHMs came forward and, and kicked in money to uh, to build this amazing cross. And that cemetery came out of the blue, offering space if we were able to find skeletons. And so it's, it's again, more donations, mm-hmm. more uh, effort from, from a big team that came together. So, so the, the first body we took over in... Um you know, in 2013, and that body went to Donegal. It was the first person recovered. That was John Ruddy. And in 2015, we took the last person recovered at Duffy's Cut. That is the woman, Catherine Burns, and she went to her native Tyrone. So John Ruddy was from Donegal. Catherine Burns was from Tyrone. And um, because we were able to put names to those two uh, sets of remains, we thought it was very fitting for them to be buried there. And it just, you know, it it was just an an amazing opportunity to be able to do this because we went from, you know, a a railroad file and, um, you know, in Bill's ghost story that Bill and I both contributed to this. And we found bodies and we buried remains back in Ireland. I still can't believe it when I think about it. And the fact that there was a woman there, too, is important, that there were um, on these miles of, of track construction, women who did the laundry, 
uh, who cooked, you know, uh, it wasn't out of the norm uh, that the railroad would have hired her. Uh, she was uh, 29 years old, 29-year-old uh, female. Janet Mon says uh, very uh, clearly about that age. There were two women on the on the ship passenger list who may have been uh, there at Duffy's Cut because their, their relatives, their male relatives were, but uh, because she was uh, close to 30, uh, was determined to be Catherine Burns. And it was only before we, right before we took her over to Ireland that this uh, piece of local folklore, the individual from the uh, condo above the uh, the site of the mass grave said that there was a woman in black who haunted his house. And we realized, my God, that's Catherine Burns. That's got to be Catherine Burns. You know, the, the idea that, again, this fill wasn't built before 1832. There was no one buried there after 1834. There's only one person in the entire world that that body could have been, and that was Catherine Burns. And what a story. She was a widow, and she came with her 70-year-old father-in-law. He had lost his son. Probably looking for the husband. John Burns had lost his son. Catherine Burns had lost her husband. And the two of them came to America for a better life. And they both died. They disappear at Duffy's Cut. Hi, I'm Damini. And I'm Sarah. And when we're not recording our own podcast, none of this is real. We're listening to Astonishing Legends. And now, back to the show. Man, this story just gets more and more amazing. We got a mass killing, a cover-up, nuns, blacksmiths. It's a lot. And it's crazy to think that back then something this wrong and this big could go down and bad guys could basically make the story disappear. Yes, but they didn't come up with a way to stop the undead from getting people's attention, now did they? No, and there's another thing I didn't think about until I read that first book that they co-authored mm. about the forensics on this, how you can right. really pinpoint in this specific case who is likely buried at Duffy's Cut. Because you got yeah. these folks that came over, you got documentation of when they got here, right. and then they never appear in history again after that. No census records, no descendants, nothing. So after the massacre, they're gone. That's right. And on top of that, you also know exactly when the fill for the railroad was built and how long it took. So if you find bodies buried in the fill, then you know they, they couldn't be some ancient remains. They can't be any earlier than 1832. And the other thing I found fascinating, which is a little part of history, is that you find like their clay pipes. That's right. And artifacts buried with them of the time. So it's... Yes. Well, this is the other thing that was kind of odd. I don't know if you picked up on this. During these cholera scares, there were orders to burn or bury everything, utensils, yes. containers, yeah. clothing, anything that they came in touch with. People were just so fearful of this disease and had very little knowledge about it. And they just want to get rid of everything. Whether well, they didn't understand how it was transmitted. Well, same thing with the plague at first. Yeah, it's just yeah. They, they weren't sure. So you do uh, what nowadays seems like a lot of crazy stuff, but you have to realize that's the context then. And, uh, you know, we have the benefit of looking back in hindsight. All right. Well, you might be thinking, how many more paranormal connections can there be to this human tragedy? And the answer is more. So when you found Catherine Burns' remains, when did you determine that for the first time you had found a woman? I was uh, on site when, when she was found, and I excavated her, and her pelvis was extremely heavy in comparison with a lot of the other skeletons. And um, Janet Mons found that to be one of the markers that it was a female, but also her small palate. Now, I must say this, that a number of bones were retained after the reburials down at the University of Pennsylvania Museum. 
Janet Monge is soon to retire from Penn and is going to deaccession those bones. And on December 2nd, we'll be bringing them out to Immaculata. And part of that collection of bones is part of Catherine, the piece of her jaw that shows that, in fact, it was a female. And uh, I'm kind of happy that we're going to see her again. I, I mean, it's morbid and strange, but I'm very happy about that because she's uh, someone, uh, you know, who uh, we, we, I don't know, Frankie, you want to tell the story of the dream and, and, um, and Derry, I mean, we all had a dream. It was me, Frankie, and Earl. Again, one of these supernatural things has no other explanation. Yes. So in 2015, we went to a little town called Dungiven in Northern Ireland. And we were in um, in this beautiful, restored uh, double farmhouse and uh, in different different houses. I was in one, and my brother and Earl Shandemeyer were in another. And um, in, in this beautiful, beautiful rural area where St. Patrick is said to have uh, labored and there's a church down the road with his that has a connection with him and there's a a 4,500 year old stone circle a couple fields away from where we were staying just picturesque ancient Ireland all around us Um, and we had a great night we ate dinner at at a fry shop in Dungiven we all had scotch eggs and various other fried things that were probably still working off these years later (laughs) <laughs> um, and we went back to the farmhouses and we all went to bed after a very busy day. And my brother Earl and I had the same dream. And the dream was that I'll relate what it was for me. And Bill and Earl said it was the same dream for them, that the door of the bedroom flew open and a very thin woman, all in black, came running up and touched me in the stomach and I felt it in the dream I felt it I woke up screaming it scared me so much and I didn't get another wink of sleep until I heard the roosters crowing in the yard outside we, we all had that dream Frank and, and Earl and I this the is same the exact thing. simultaneous dreams it's impossible we didn't yes. watch anything on TV there was nothing that could have you know spurred this. we didn't even have a TV in the farmhouses there was no television so we have no explanation for it, but it happened. And we all had the same dream and it equally scared the three of us. <laughs> you know, we still talk about it to this day. Whatever that dream was, whatever that manifestation or that vision was, um, we think it had something to do with with what we were there for, whether it, it was something from the neighborhood or from the house, I don't know. Do you think that that contact, did it seem a friendly, affectionate, violent, nice? This wasn't Catherine Burns. This, this was, was scary. Oh, this was okay. frightening. This was something that didn't okay. want us to do that. I've never had an experience oh. like that. I mean, Bill and I, have ha- we did have another experience at a church uh, from the 1600s in, in central New Jersey that was horrifying. Um, I won't tell you about it right now, but this dream that we had was the worst for me. Because it was malevolent. It was, it was, it's a nightmare. It was a nightmare. It was a classic nightmare. Yeah. And, we, and we all woke up at the same time yeah. with having had that same dream. And Earl and I in one house and Frank in the other house is kind of bizarre. I mean, I don't know what the hell it was. I don't, I don't have any explanation for it. Yeah. 
<laughs> I, that's how I took it. It was like something was trying to stop us doing what uh, we were really meant to do. I, I think, I don't think there's any coincidence in anything that we've done at Duffy's Cut from my brother and me catching up on 2002 on Labor Day uh, to his side of the of, of the visions of ghosts uh, a couple years earlier to doing what we did at the site and, and the burials in America and in Ireland. I don't think there's any coincidence in any of it. Um, and so I think that what we experienced in 2015 was was something trying to tell us to stop for whatever reason. It could have been a, a someone who uh, the ghost of someone who knew her. I mean, who knows? It could be uh, someone who wanted us not to commemorate her, maybe a rival in you know in a love affair or something. Who knows? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it was, it was just but simultaneous dreams. I never heard of anything like that. After we found the remains at Duffy's Cut in 2002, I actually did a blessing of the site as a clergyman. I came down with my prayer book and and I did a, a blessing of the location. I and we remember that we remember the dead at Duffy's Cut every year at the site of uh, their their grave at West Laurel Hill Cemetery, and we we have folks who come together and remember them. So there's something special to remembering these folks whose stories were buried for almost 180 years till we recover them. And when we went back to Ireland, we were remembering where they came from, the man and the woman who we buried there. And, and there are people who didn't want those folks remembered. There were people who wanted that story to remain buried. And I think what we experienced in 2015 was one of those something that wanted to keep the story buried. You've got another project going on from maybe some folks that with cholera that might have escaped to a different section of track. That's where you're working now. It's a, no, a footnote in our in our book in the cholera chapter where a man escaped. Yeah, I remember reading mm. that. Yeah, yeah, and he yeah. ran west to mile 48, which is another mile that happens to have an Irish contractor named Peter Connor. Those guys all died, and and um, they were carted north of the track line. They weren't buried right alongside the track line because it was a flat piece of uh, terrain. There's no cut, you know, or fill or anything, and um, they were carted up to uh, up Route 113 off of Route 30, and buried in what is today a cemetery. It was a potter's field at the time, and uh, so the families that owned that land still owned it in 1872, when um, Northwood Cemetery was incorporated. I got to say that there's something going on at that mile 48 and at mile 59 Duffy's Cut in 1832, in 1872, and then in 1909. And um, that linked these places together. In 1872, that's when Patrick Doyle found skeletons at Duffy's Cut and moved them to where they are under the stone monument. He didn't find the ones, you know, on the eastern end of the fill. Those are the ones we found. And out at Northwood, they decided to um, incorporate that land as a cemetery because they couldn't use it as a as farmland. And then 1909, Martin Clement puts the stone monument up around the site and creates the file at Duffy's Cut and out of Downingtown. Penny Packer writes his history of Downingtown, which gives the full story of what happened out there. That was in 1902? Mm -hmm. Same year. The other issue at Northwood is we have a similar evidence of violence. We know that um, one of the wealthy landowners, Henry Gallagher, had assaulted the Irish contractor for the railroad, Peter Connor, and it was uh, brought before a court and the state attorney general supported Peter Connor against Henry Gallagher. 
And uh, Henry Gallagher was uh, was a wealthy landowner. He was from Ireland himself. He was Protestant. And we believe that Peter Connor was probably like in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was, there was a case of assault and battery. And um, even though the, the attorney general in Pennsylvania prosecuted Henry Gallagher uh, for assault on this Irish contractor, um, the jury of locals unanimously acquitted Henry Gallagher. And within, within months, Peter Connor and his work crew also disappear. We have no record of his death. We have no record of Peter Connor ever working for the railroad again. And that little piece, that little nugget of, of criminal um, involvement at that site really is, is like a sleeping gun in a way, because, you know, here it is, smoking gun that, that tells us that there's already violence there before these men disappear, because they all disappear. And a very interesting other part of that picture is that in Chester County, there is something similar to the East Whiteland Horse Company. It's called the Chester County Vigilance Committee, mm-hmm. similar to the to the operation of East Whiteland Horse Company. And the guy who was in charge of that entity in 1832 was Dr. John M. Pugh, who was the alleged physician at Duffy's Cut in the supposed cholera hospital yeah, the railroad set up. I remember that. So he's uh, talking about a smoking gun. I think he's a smoking cannon in this picture. Yeah, he's at both sites. So there's a whole protocol, a structure. Uh, there's they're putting a system in place in the absence of a pre-existing one yeah. to deal with all this stuff the way they want to deal with it, and until something more fair and just comes For along. Sure. For sure. It's amazing that any of this is available, though. Like, you know, the court records were in the Chester County Archives. That was one of my days off during the COVID lockdown when they they had the archive open one day. And I drove down and I said, well, let's see what we got. And there it was. But, you know, the the thing about J.M. Pugh connects it also with Duffy's Cut, as Bill said. So, you know, there's, there's, there's a way of handling these people and we know how to do it. In your first book... Frank, there's some mention that you were concerned about the paranormal trivializing the real events here, which is completely understandable. Now that you've had all these experiences throughout this, uh, especially since the first book came out, has it changed your disposition? Oh, 100%. The the experiences that we've had at Duffy's Cut have changed my conception of what the paranormal is and how we encounter it. I've always believed as a clergyman in a spiritual reality sur- that surrounds us all the time, but kind of that that gray area um, that we experienced uh, that my brother talked about um, at Immaculata um, that is indicated in the, in the railroad file and that we experienced in Ireland in 2015. Um, I don't have a logical explanation for it, but what the category that it would would be paranormal. And frankly, I believe it. And I think historically, there is a space in the Catholic world for the existence of these spirits. I mean, the the All Saints Day, you know, the existence of the Ember Night. None of the sisters at Immaculata doubted the supernatural aspect of this from day one. Not a single one of them. And when the first artifacts went on exhibit in our uh, library at Immaculata, everybody reported there that they heard things if they were working there at night and they saw things. Now those bones, uh, whenever we found them as per our agreement with the county coroner, when we excavated them, ended up in my office and then we took them down to the Penn Museum after that. But there were always moments where there were bones in my office and it's going to happen again uh, December 2nd of this year. I'm not afraid of them. It's not something that, that any of us would be afraid of, but that they convey something 
And uh, I'm I'm happy with that. And I know other people might think that we're we're insane, or I don't care if anybody thinks I'm insane, because again, I know what I saw, and I know what led to these bones, and that's that. The hell with the critics. When I did the sight blessing down there, I won't say it was out of sheer superstition, but you know, I figured these poor folks have been placed in the ground without any kind of remembrance. So in 2009, right before Janet Monge came to the site, I, I brought out my prayer book and I and I blessed the site. And there is a spiritual dimension to this from the get-go. These folks were denied any kind of spiritual comfort. The nuns were there, yes, but not for all of the 57. The first seven of the 57, maybe? We don't know. We don't know how many you know folks the nuns took care of. Might have been the last ones. We don't quite know the exact uh, chronology of who died. F- you know, we know that the seven who were buried died first, but we don't know, you know, when the nuns arrived. We know that it was before the last person died, that's for sure. But, you know, largely these folks died without any kind of care, without any kind of comfort. They died being denied the ability to be loved or cared for by anybody. And so when we were declared family, when we were declared the legal guardians of these remains, they became like our kids. You know, again, as Bill said, our, our biological children, all of us, we had kids who were around the same age. And so we kind of looked on these folks as part of our extended family. And we still do. This is Ezra with the Galileo Project. And while I'm setting up UAP detection equipment, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. I think it's an amazing story. And I mean, it's it's trivial compared to what you guys have done on it, but it seemed to sort of find its way into our work pipeline too, in a strange way. It really came together rather quickly. You know, today I was frantically trying to work on this outline and questions to talk to you about, and I got to a point where I couldn't remember the name of the horse company. I've been flipping through all the pages. Sometimes we find books on Kindle. You can just do a search. It's easy. But when it's on paper, it's like, ah, where was that? And you're thumbing through, and I couldn't find it in the index. And then I went back, and I typed something else into our outline, and I looked down, and the page that I had randomly left the book on, it was right there. And I have this leather thing with weights in it for keeping pages open in the book. And right above where I had dropped it, like five minutes earlier, it said East Whiteland Horse Company. Like it was the next thing. When I looked back at the book, it was right on the thing. I was. So then I went to your index and saw that it only appeared in the book on three pages. Two of them are like right next to each other. So out of 150 or 60 pages before you get to your appendixes, I just happened to drop it right on the thing I was looking for as I was typing this up. And this whole thing felt like that. It's like, here's what you need to do. Here's this. Let's get this done. Let's keep moving. We're going to help you here. That kind of, there was just kind of a vibe to it. I know it seems silly, but we've been doing this a while. And when these things happen, we pay more attention to them than most people. So that's something I wanted to share with you guys right there. You get little nudges here and there. uh, It's not like you come in and and the book's already been done by elves over there. It's just that some little things... uh, you know, maybe somebody's mind has been changed. Maybe yeah. uh, you get help where you weren't expecting it. It's just like, uh, and those are kind of intangible things. And sometimes it's physical things, which are kind of odd. You know, books opening to a certain page or even flying off the shelf or uh, things happening. But it does seem like uh, that first appearance, you you were chosen. And these guys are going to get this done. We made the appearance. We've set the intention. 
now it's just like uh, things in motion. But yeah, just, I mean, reading about all the hurdles you had to go through to get this done, because, you know, most people would probably give up. You you run into, uh, like you said, it could be something like with Amtrak saying like, well, structurally, you can't dig any further and maybe you didn't find anything and that's the end of it. You know, it's like it, it remains a uh, an urban legend or, uh, you know, a local legend and you just kind of leave it at that. But it seems like just enough clues have been pieced together. It didn't happen overnight. It's been uh, a couple of decades now, but it, it seems like throughout the way, things have been put in your, in your path to help you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely the way it feels. Absolutely. Speaking to that and Bill's sighting of these three glowing figures and your talk of Ember Knight, and it's the old trope of the dead want their stories told. They want the truth to come out. That's why they're trying to find help during this, the thin time, the thin place. Do you think that you were compelled in any way to do all this with all the difficulties and hurdles you've overcome? Do you think that there, you were compelled to tell this story? And do you think that you may have received some divine or supernatural help in getting all these things accomplished? I do, without a doubt. I believe that it was meant to be from our grandfather's telling of the story to what Billy saw and my brother saw um, our coming together on Labor Day of 2002 to finding the site just a month later. I think there was a purpose in all of this. I think it was a story that needed to be told. And, and we had help from the other side, without a doubt. Yeah, I think we're all we're uniform in the belief that there was something, an echo from beyond the grave. I mean, big tragedies do leave echoes, I think, in time. And uh, I don't see how this could have happened without something from beyond. I mean, how how what the hell is the coincidence? You know, I mean, if him, if Frank having the file, I'll get a job there. There's something that spurs this whole thing on. Tom Connor and I saw odds and percentages are against something like that happening. I mean, my usual uh, course of my career, I'm, it's nothing paranormal about it. It's boring. It's fun doing history, but it's just nothing like this. This is an unusual happening. And it led to the finding of bodies of skeletons. Digging these individuals up uh, was, I think, the most meaningful thing any of us ever did. I would posit that this was your fate and your destiny. I think there's a reason you were already working at Immaculata. It seems like uh, a lot of time, one of the things that we've encountered over the years with other stories that we've covered is that there's an amorphous sensibility to time and place and where you are. And to me, to, to a certain extent, it seems like you were destined to take this path even before it was obvious to you. It seemed like somebody else had already picked you guys out to me. <laughs> I it seems it. that it way seems to, me. Like to me. Yeah, I get it. I do. The yeah. three glowing figures. Yeah. yeah. I'm happy with that. Yeah. Well, I just want to say thank you both, Doctors Watsons, for, <laughs> for, for coming on with us and sharing this story. There's something very cathartic about it just for me, and I've only been wrapped up in it about eight or nine days here. So uh, it's been a really fascinating story for us to uncover. We love. It's one of our favorite things. It's got uh, an interesting paranormal component to it, but also academically, historically, and in terms of justice, it's very compelling too. And it was great to have you guys on to tell it. I guess in some way, we're part of this chain of custody, this story, and we're very glad to be able to tell it with you and keep it going because uh, it's not something that's a well-known story. You know, Scott or I had ever heard of it before, and it does feel like uh, a bit of kismet or some inspiration that came our way in tripping over the story and you being both available and and really laying out the story very well. And uh, we thank you for that. But yeah, it's something that it's a little bit like for us that it has momentum on its own. 
All right, we're getting close to the end of this series, mm-hmm. the end of this show. And again, I don't know. I just felt like there was a there for me anyway. This is corny, yeah. but I, there was like a spiritual <laughs> reason to do this show. I mean, when we were right. looking for something to do, and it, we've already talked about this ad nauseum, I guess, like we yeah. do everything. But <laughs> if you believe any of this at all, it seemed like, yeah. as we said in part one, this show picked us as much as we picked it. This story something about it. And even now, as I'm talking about it right now, it still feels like I'm getting a pat on the back. It's like, thank you. This needed to happen. This isn't a 60 minutes episode and certainly there are bigger venues, but it is also one more place that the story is being featured along with local news articles and uh, journals online and this and then, especially in the world of forensic archaeology. It's pretty interesting because it's not that ancient. You can have clues right now that are within your grasp, although it's a tricky spot. That's the other part that I thought was pretty complicated is that you're pretty close to the track, so you don't have free access to it. Yeah. It's not like you can just plow around in there on your own. I couldn't believe they had permission from Amtrak to dig as close as they were going to, but like they said, they they got friends in high places uh, now. Right. They did do a degree, and I think they they had to, Amtrak put a stop to that because of safety concerns. But well, there's a range. They, yeah, they're yeah. still, I think they still have permission to get to, you know, they described it as being shaped like a J. They still have permission to, to excavate part of that. Right. But there's a part that they could never get to. The authority on it has transferred. We had a, a very nice listener email us saying that I think they were going to travel by it with their daughter to uh, go to New York City and uh-huh. wanted to know if this was still an Amtrak route because they couldn't find anything online as far as the ticket and, and any info. And I think it was now been co-opted by a state transit authority of the area. So it's still operating. When you look on yeah. Google Earth, I can't remember if it's Google Earth, the standalone app, right. or when you look in your browser. But one of them, like when you go to look at it and look where the memorial is, and we have the actual coordinates of the uh, memorial, the wall and everything, which we'll post on the mm-hmm. webpage. But when you look in the satellite shot, the train is right there. There's an yeah, active yeah. train. It's like right next to right. where this is happening, which just right. tells you how active, you know, the track still is. Like a train track, there's a through line through all of this. And yeah, what if the ghosts had never appeared with this story have come out? Well, also the ghosts had to appear to the right person. Yeah, because you know most people are like, well, I, I am seeing things. It's been a long drive. Right. I've got to relieve myself. I don't know what that is. Maybe it's just some, well, <laughs> as, as uh, Bill said, maybe it's just some weird neon art. Like who would pay for that? That's kind of freaky. You know, yeah, he yeah. didn't know what it was, but it, it, it set that seed in his mind. Of course, he didn't just run out and go through the archives that night. It was just an idea that was planted. Like that was weird. What is that? And it started to build this thread. It started to inch down the track to mile 59. And it had this momentum that's been building for a long time. But, you know, as we always say, like, well, what's ghost time? What's time like for them? I've come to the belief that there is no perception, which is really hard to imagine as a human. Like, what do you mean you can't tell time? Things don't seem like a long time on the other side. It's just not a factor for them. So... Uh, They have been watching people come and go and pass and traipse down the tracks. And maybe they're dancing on the burial site as specters and they just keep going. And at some point, it's just like a thought occurs, but also a hundred years ago. (laughs) You know what I'm saying is that, hey, maybe we should tell somebody about this. Maybe that guy there, you know what? He looks like an inquisitive type and a... uh, and a scholar and a gentleman, and uh, let's make an appearance and see what he does with it. And imagine all the other people, though, that they did make some kind of appearance to and didn't have the means 
or the the will or they just got ridiculed. So they they didn't go any further with it in investigating. They certainly didn't have access to the to the records, but then the right person did, or at least a twin brother of the right person. And together they brought this to light. To paraphrase one of your favorite mammoth quotes of his dialogue, <laughs> I think it was from a Spartan. Uh, uh, and I'm going to leave out the bad words, but he's like, you got to set your blank to receive. You yes. got to set it to receive. That's and it, right. So these folks were set to receive, whether they believed in it or not, or they didn't know. When you think about, there is a lot of stories here, right? Like there's not just the stories that the locals were seeing. Right. There are the stories that Frank and Bill encountered and the people on uh, the Duffy's Cut project, the yeah. other people that worked on it had things happening. And I guarantee you there's more that we're not even hearing. Oh, uh, sure. from their own teams, from people that went out there on their own. Oh, I'm going to go out today and do a little excavating by themselves and something happened and they didn't even tell anybody about it. Yeah. There's a lot going on here. And one of the things that was fascinating to me the most, and it's more than just the ghosts that were seen at the Immaculata campus, it was the wildlife. That story really got yeah. me. Where they were like, it was dead quiet in there until they started making a recovery. There were yeah. no insect sounds. There were no bird sounds or very little. They noticed that it felt very, very quiet. And then it was almost like the air had lifted once they <laughs> started to uncover the mystery. That is really intense to me. And what I like about this is that, you know, a lot of times we're talking about these stories and they're taking place so long ago. We don't have the corroboration. We don't have the witnesses to talk to. We don't have people that experienced it. It's a medieval tale or, you know, it's the beast of Jevoudan. And like all you have <laughs> is, is yeah. hearsay. And it's like this, no, this is unfolding contemporaneously for us. And these people are describing things that we've described in other stories that we right. had to say, well, you know what? This is pure speculation. But in this case, these are folks who are alive now who are experiencing the paranormal hand in hand with an actual historical mystery intertwined with archaeology and mm -hmm. forensics. And it's all playing together. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good way to put it. And that's what I really liked about this series. It's exactly what Astonishing Legends wants to find. It's a little bit of, of history that's important. It's forensic science. It's archaeology. It's a bit of a murder mystery. There's a collective dream that they all had, which I find that really funny when people try to rationalize that. Like, well, that's just a phenomenon. Like, okay, even if that's just a scientific weird you know, thing that happens, what's the mechanics of that? Uh, you're picking up yeah. psychic vibes from each other. That's also crazy. So it just an interesting grab bag of all of these elements, which makes a good story. And people would say like, well, I, you know, it's kind of a local thing. Uh, I guess you had to be there or know these folks. And these are human stories. And in this case, it's 57 of them. And you can bet if this happened in the U.S. these days, where that many folks died, it wouldn't just be rolled up with the carpet and tossed out. You'd be hearing about it. It's a big deal. And it was a big deal then, but times were different. And just imagine how difficult things were. Read the separate PDF article that's on our website for the, the episode itself. It'll be in both part one and two, which is a separate document that was written by Professor William E. Watson, where he describes what the nuns had to go through. I mean, walking back 20 miles and almost collapsing because nobody would give them food, shelter, or water. And yeah, you know, try walking 20 miles now without your sports bottle. And they finally make it back. And it just goes to show you two things. One, 
that truly no good deed goes unpunished to just how tough those times were back then and the attitudes of people because people, again, they were so scared, but also selfish. And, uh, and I understand that, but like, geez, you know, leave some water and food out on the step. You don't have to go invite them in, but like just nobody would even open their doors to them once they found out who they were. And, uh, you know, again, it's, yeah, it's a different time, but uh, there is no uh, time cap on human frailty and cruelty. The other thing is, you know, how we were talking earlier about the dog and not knowing what it represented in the simultaneous dream. Remember, you know, when we were talking to uh, Frank and Bill, it was a little bit like, what do you think that was? Who do you think that was? Because obviously we don't think it was Catherine who you're, you know, bringing home or we don't think it's so what does it represent? And it's, it, and they didn't know they were befuddled by it. And it, when I I'm looking at it now on the back end of the story, trying to think, okay, well, this is a manifestation of evil. Mm-hmm. And it makes me wonder what is it that doesn't want these remains returned home and this story closed. And, and it makes you wonder if you believe any of this at all, yeah. it makes you wonder about the idea that the story itself, while it was undone and unsolved and uh, those spirits were languishing and mm-hmm. appearing to different people asking for help, maybe that in itself manifested an evil that fed off of that energy. And maybe when they were starting to put things right in a major way by yeah. returning those remains home, maybe that thing knew that it was about to be out of something to feed on and it wanted to stop them or scare them or keep them from completing that mission. So that could continue to be an untold, sad, evil story, you know? Wow. Well, you know, that concept has come up in several different things and uh, cases that we've come across where if you talk to a medium or somebody with, uh, who's received psychic impressions about the space or perhaps what's going on, you know, on the other side of the veil is that there is a more powerful spirit bundling up, keeping captive smaller spirits to feed yeah. off that energy, like yeah. in the sludge entity case and some other haunted houses we won't mention. But basically that there is a controlling force uh, that is benefiting, feeding, as you say, off these other energies that uh, it doesn't want released. It enjoys that control in perpetuity for forever. It is in control. And these, again, there's no sense of time, but you are being uh, subjugated in the spirit world. And that could be an elemental, something that was possibly never human in the first place, just uh, something else. Right. So if you don't believe in any of this, it's a... I know, we've gone off the the rails. No pun intended. (laughs) Well... No, what I was going to say is that when you face something like this, and as you say all the time, it's very easy to be an expert in all this when you have not experienced it. Just like, well, this is really what happened. You didn't really see anything like that. You weren't even there. And so, you know, that's a common thing. So when somebody experiences something, even when you're skeptical or you're an academic, it's like, come on, that doesn't happen. That's not real. But it's so profound and intense that you cannot deny it. Then when you start looking into it, then you'll see puzzle pieces fall into place. And in the new season of Unsolved Mysteries, because I know people may be mentioning this and pointing us to it and, and commenting, the very first episode of the new season three here uh, just reminded me of the, you know, it's another train mystery, mystery at mile marker 45. Nothing too much to do with this, but it is a tragedy on the train tracks. But the other one that really called out to me was episode eight, I believe, which I just saw not too long ago, but it's 
called the Ghost in Apartment 14, I think. And that is the case where the woman and her young daughter move into this place. And it seems like the person, the spirit that was living there suffered a trauma and yearns to be heard, yearns for this case to be solved and for the people responsible to face justice so that there can be some peace and rest on the other Mm. side. And the truth, or as Bill Shakespeare said, murder will out, is that things need to come to light because, yeah, there were consequences, but not completely. So anyway, that just reminded me when, when the desire is so strong, it punches a hole from one world to the other. So Frank, what was it like for you guys to actually be able to take John Ruddy home and have a service for him in his home country? I'll never forget standing in Donegal as the official family. We were we were declared to be the family of these folks who were who were killed at Duffy's Cut by the coroner. Uh, we were the next of kin, and we lowered his body into the ground in the classic way with straps around this casket and lowering that body into the ground for its final resting place where he came from, where he should have been buried with dignity and respect all those those years earlier. I can't think of anything that we've done professionally that has, you know, or personally that's had that kind of a, an impact. We all had tears in our eyes. Well, Bill, what are your final thoughts on all the strange things that have happened so far in this journey you and Frank have been on? What do you make of all the stuff you can't explain? I'm not walking around imagining ghosts everywhere, but I I know I saw something in 2000. I know I had that dream. I know we saw that dog. I don't know what any of this means, except that it has to point to something, and the skeletons are proof that there was something here. That's going to wrap up our series on the nearly forgotten massacre at Duffy's Cut. Remember to stay tuned after the closing credits to hear Frank Watson play his song Lament for the 57 on the bagpipes. And join us for a live YouTube Christmas show on Monday, December 12th at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific and 11 p.m. or 2300 GMT. The audio from that live show will also be the last main show of the year on our regular feed. So if you miss the live show, subscribers will still get the audio from it later automatically. Astonishing Legends is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell at VW Sound and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also head of research and the social media manager. Our technical producer is Ed Vicola, or as we call him, the mechanic. Special thanks to our announcer, John Bolin. Hi, I'm Ezra Kelderman. Hi, I'm Ray Alvarez. Hi, I'm Damini. And I'm Sarah. Easy. Damini. That's spelled R-A-Y. S-A-R-A-H. 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 Sarah, stop it. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane at foundermusic.com. All other music and sound design for the show is composed and created by Alan Caressia. Our logo was created by Tommy Beaver Design. And our animated graphics for social media and YouTube are done by Joshua Sloan at DeadStreetProductions.com. Every episode going back to September of 2020 has a transcription available on its corresponding webpage at our website. Earlier transcriptions can be made available upon request to AstonishingContact at gmail.com. Astonishing Legends would not be possible without you, our listeners. Visit our store at AstonishingLegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Instagram, 
Twitter, Discord, Facebook, and YouTube. You can also visit us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content, including the Patreon-exclusive show, Astonishing Junk Drawer, which is available every week the main show is not. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.